0: Uh, the area of uh, missions Um, and in particular I've had the privilege of having a lot to do with uh, uh, West Papua or Irian Jaya uh, which um, that is you know the part of Papua that belongs to Indonesia Uh, some of the most stunning Christians you'll ever meet on the planet are there and uh, the leader of the church He's a, a, a close friend of mine, Lippius. His father was a, uh, not a cannibal, but that was just a minor distinction. He was a warrior who killed many people with his bare hands. And, and uh, his father's name was Gembri. I met his father five years ago. Um, it's the home of, has anyone read Peace Child? By Don Richardson, so this is the Darni tribe. And um, I had the privilege of meeting I've spent a lot of time with Lipius. So Lipius is one of the stunning leaders of the the world and he's actually very close friends with Jokowi. It's really interesting to what's going on in Indonesia. Um, Not many Australians understand how much influence the Christians have in the government of Jokowi. Jokowi is uh, one of his main ministers, a man called Lahut. You'll see his name in the press. is a strong evangelical Christian. Jokowi himself asks... um, Lipius to pray for him and was considering giving Lipius a very major position in the Indonesian government. So the, the influence of this small group of people is phenomenal. Um, uh, mass conversions uh, in the 1960s and 70s and uh, as I say, uh, G- Gembri who's now passed away last year at the age of mid-80s, um, when I met Gembri he was almost totally blind And I had the enormous, he is the the single most vibrant human being I've ever met in my life. I've just never met anyone like him. He just shakes with joy, this old man, um, who is an apostle and uh, was converted from this savagery. And from that point, and I had the enormous privilege of hearing his conversion story from his mouth and the man who converted him, who was now in his late 70s, because uh, the guy happened to be in Papua when I was there, and I heard the story from both of them independently. I'll just quickly tell to you because it does relate into what's a human being. Now, um, this area of Papua, was, which is the, all, the, all the highlands, was so barbarous that the Dutch government forbade anyone from going there because they just killed everyone. Um, and uh, this mi- missionary uh, was then in his twenties and uh, they'd made a few penetra- penetrating moves and um, he went right into the highlands and he'd heard about this legendary warrior and he wanted to meet him. And so some of the natives, they, they, they can communicate by these whooping cries that echo up the valleys like a <coughs> telegraph. And they gave this message that he wanted to meet this uh, famous chieftain Gembri and uh, Gembri came down and a few hours later they met across a clearing probably from here to the doors of the church and the missionary was at one end and Gembri was at the other just totally naked penis gourd um, you know the stuff through the nose all the um, killed many men with his bare hands um, and they looked at each other. And it's just so, such a privilege to have heard the story of what was going on in the mines. So the missionary is, what, what do I say to him? Gambry's thinking, he's never seen a white man in his life. So he's thinking, is this a man or is this one of the gods? And perhaps I should kill him if he's one of the gods. So he's just, just getting ready to kill him. John doesn't know that's what he's thinking. And then John walks across the clearing to him. Walks across the clearing to him. He picked up a few words, and this is all he said to him. He reached out, and he touched him, and he said, you are a good man. That's all he said to him, and he repeated it, you are a good man. And Gambry, when Gambry told me the story, he said he was thinking, but I'm a bad man, uh, I've killed people and that was all the missionary said and he then left (coughs) unbeknown to him Gambry then went and actually baptized himself in the river he he cleansed off all of his um you know threw away all of his uh you know the war paintings he had on his face and everything and uh went to john the next day and said i want to follow you and john was Very sceptical and uh, thought people had manipulated him, but that was actually the beginning of Gambray's conversion. From that position, this man, Gambray, became an apostle. Um, And uh, people have heard him preach to crowds of 10,000. He literally knew half the New Testament off by heart, could just repeat it all. And when I met him at the age of 80s, his son Lippius was running the church, and Lippius is as impressive as his father. And uh, uh, Gambris days all begin at four o'clock in the morning with prayer, through to midday. Um, extraordinary people. That having been said, you know, when I went up there about eight years ago. I thought that I would be a completely irrelevant, because a friend of mine wanted me to go and meet them, completely irrelevant person. I thought my theology is too complicated for them. They'll be really simple for spiritual laws people. And they won't be in the least bit interested in the things, you know, my life's about business and organisations. And during that time for six days, to my astonishment, I spoke to about 8,000 people and they'd got, you know, the traditional sacred, secular, don't be involved in society gospel, like we all get. It doesn't matter if you get it in Australia, because Australia's Christianised. But if you get that gospel in Papua and the people who own you do not suffer from dualism. Islam does not suffer from dualism. And they created a vacuum by abstaining so all their leaders became church leaders. Every single converted young Papuan, out of this phenomenal beginning, we had the sacred-secular split and became church leaders. And the banking system, the land system, the agricultural system, the political system was filled by the Muslims who now run their country. And they've lost their country and they had tears in their eyes when they heard what they call the holistic gospel. And their, their universal response to me was, why didn't the missionaries tell us this 40 years ago? so it was very stark to look at that kind of country where the prevailing worldview has not ever been influenced by what we're hearing it doesn't matter to us and we think it's oh it doesn't matter maybe it's an it's a kind of abstract advancement or understanding of the gospel and and yet they've lost their country now in a way you know they're fighting back but the the importance of these worldview battles was really uh Laid down. I mean, the other thing that was important was as we spoke to the missionaries, despite the conversion of so many of them, it's still shallow because the animism and the big man culture, in the, it's ruining the churches and because they're not getting this kind of depth of gospel to rethink what's a human being, what's society. That's actually what they need to think about. And without that, the kind of you know John 3:16 gospel is a bit of sticking plaster across the top and the old ways just keep reasserting themselves in church life and despite conversion I'm sure it's genuine it's still paper thin so uh, those are some of the things I was thinking about as I was listening this morning I thought what we would do now is um, actually not have questions but just go straight on with the talk and then we just wrap we can have questions to, as the wrap-up is that okay Thanks. Okay.
1: <coughs> well, I want to begin this uh, final section with a favorite quotation of mine from this book, After Virtue, written by the philosopher Alistair MacIntyre. He writes as follows I can only answer the question, what am I to do? If I can answer the prior question, of what story or stories do I find myself a part? We enter human society with one or more imputed characters, roles into which we have been drafted. And we have to learn what they are in order to be able to understand how others respond to us and how our responses to them are apt to be construed. It is through hearing stories about wicked stepmothers, lost children, good but misguided kings, wolves that suckle twin boys, youngest sons who receive no inheritance but must make their own way in the world, It's through hearing those stories, that children learn or mislearn both what a child and what a parent is, what the cast of characters may be in the drama in which they have been born and what the ways of the world are. Deprive children of stories, and you leave them unscripted, anxious stutterers in their actions as in their words." (laughs) It's a fantastic quote. The bit I'm interested in, of course, is this bit. I can only answer the question, what am I to do, if I can answer the prior question, Of what story or stories do I find myself a part? That's a very profound observation. And we've really been exploring that point for all of the talks that we've been uh, doing. We find ourselves in the middle of a story I suggested last evening. Which one is it? Is it only our personal story? Is there a larger tale? And it's only as we can read that that we can understand where we're heading and what we should do next. These things flow, flow out of each other. So I want to go on with that now into this particular question about what kind of story are we in, in terms of where it's heading, where we're going. So we're into, we're into promise and hope and expectation and, and uh, eschatology ideas of the end and the purpose, uh, any true story is going to make sense of things in my life. So, if, if, if we say the gospel is the ultimately true story, then in principle, even though we may struggle with this at times, in principle that story ought to make sense of everything in our lives. Uh, one of the things. That it ought to make sense of is waiting. <coughs> waiting for things to happen. You may have noticed, and you may not have really reflected on this, as what I think is a profound theological point, that we spend a lot of our life waiting. <coughs> waiting for things to happen or to finish happening or to happen again. <coughs> Micro waits, mini waits, long waits, endless waits solitary, shared, and collective waits. There's a thousand different kinds of waiting, waiting for someone to finish a sentence, or an anecdote, or to get to the point, for ink to dry, for a friend to catch up, for bathwater to run warm, traffic lights to change, and so on. Waiting for spring, waiting for final exams, for a tyrant to fall, for the war to end, For the economic crisis to resolve. Waiting is inescapable. Natural processes take time. Civilized society depends on our being prepared to wait our turn. So, we wait. And sometimes we wait with hope. And sometimes we wait with no Jerusalem knows a lot about waiting. And you would expect any true story to to tell you a lot about this subject. If you're worrying about the math, I wouldn't. I'm not even sure the equation works. uh, Much of the Jerusalem story is about waiting. But it's not waiting without hope. The story that we're involved in is infused with hope From the very beginning and right to the end. And this is, once again, not for the first time, an unparalleled story when it comes to this particular question. So that's a very good place to end our reflections uh, over this fortnight, and that's what I intend to do. So, let's think about hope in Jerusalem. Where does hope begin? I think it begins in the beginning. Hope shows up in the garden, Genesis 2. Here we read about two trees. You may remember, among the many trees that are pleasing to the eye and good for food, we have the tree of life, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, the second of these, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, stands for wisdom, grasped independently of God. The first tree, the tree of life, stands for immortality. To eat from that tree is to live forever, we discover. And in Genesis 3, you remember, immortality is denied to human beings because of their lack of trust in God's goodness, fundamentally. That's the fundamental problem that leads to the fundamental set of problematic actions. They grasp after wisdom, and so they're not allowed to eat from the tree of life, because if they do, then as fallen beings they will live forever. I think that's the implication of the story. So, it's an action of grace for for God to exclude them from the tree of life. Because if He doesn't, then they will live forever, compromised by evil. And that, I think, in the story is really why we're told the Lord God banished human beings from the garden. He's not being mean, which is all too often, I think, somehow we pick that idea up. But actually, I see this as a, as a kindly and compassionate, uh, necessary action. Now, the way I've just told that story, of course, is a very particular way, because I don't think that in this story the point is that immortality was once possessed by these human creatures and then lost, and we've discussed that uh, already. There's a very long tradition in the Christian church of reading things in that way. Once we possessed innate immortality and then we didn't. But actually, I think that way of telling the story is another of the examples of the way in which Athens has influenced Jerusalem for the worse and not for the better. The notion of original, primeval human immortality, at least so far as the soul is concerned, is a Greek idea. It is not, I maintain, a biblical idea. Again, Um, I'm building on Edwin Judge here. You may remember if you were here for those lectures that he discussed this very subject in his final talk in 2014. He spoke of the importance of Pythagoras, uh, known to most of us only for that wretched triangle you may remember at high school, but he's a far more interesting fellow than that, it turns out. And Pythagoras developed what became the standard Greek view, in which the body is really uh, a prison for the soul. That's the the concept of humanness. Uh, The soul's job is to escape, if it can, from the prison of the body. And Edwin spoke about Plato, and Plato describing Socrates' last day, in which Socrates talks about the hope— of the soul being separated from the body. If you don't remember that and you're very intrigued by that, that's in the Fido uh, 67c. For Plato, likewise, the real eternal and changing world is elsewhere beyond the world of the senses. It's not about physicality. For Plato, all human souls once lived in the higher reality of the world of the forms And at a certain point, souls were joined. Immortal souls were joined to bodies. And we have a vague memory of this, he said. We have an intuition about it. And the point is to raise that intuition to the level of philosophical conviction, and at that point we'll be enlightened and we'll be able to escape. Because in this view, in Socrates' view, in Plato's view, uh, the body drags the soul down. The body uh, drags the soul down so that it becomes dizzy or drunk with sensual information. Uh, so, the, what, we are, what we can get at by the senses. Philosophy clears the mind. Philosophy allows you to go back up the way. And of course, this is very congruent with Eastern philosophy and the question of where Pythagoras got this from is very interesting, and the answer is probably Egypt, which seems to have been a bit of a clearinghouse in the ancient world for for ideas, as it were. So, probably it comes from the east via Egypt, and Pythagoras takes it to Greece, and it becomes Pythagoras' and Plato's view. So, that is the natural immortality of the soul, right? The soul possesses it, and that idea gets absorbed into Christian thinking, because Plato is a major dialogue partner of the early church. And although you won't find the idea of the innate immortality of the soul in most of the early post-apostolic church fathers, like Clement of Rome or Ignatius or Justin or Irenaeus, it does pop up in the writings of a man called Athenagoras, apparently for the first time. And Tertullian, ironically, and I say ironically, because Tertullian is the fellow who's famous for asking, what does Jerusalem have to do with Athens? And he's pretty robust about that issue, and it just shows you that just because you're robust about something doesn't mean you'll not fall victim to it. So, Tertullian, ironically, is the one that really brings this idea to prominence, and he explicitly tells us that he borrows it from Plato. Fascinating, actually. Here's what he says in the in his writing, The Resurrection of the Flesh. Some things are known even by nature. The immortality of the soul, for instance, is held by many. The knowledge of our God is possessed by all. I may use, therefore, the opinion of Plato when he declares every soul is immortal. So, there's no mystery about the genealogy of this idea, right? This is where it comes from. And then by way of Origin and poor old Augustine that tends to get dumped on, and he has been dumped on already today, but, you know, it's a mixed bag. Uh, So, he writes this very important treatise, The Immortality of the Soul. The title gives away the content, so that's Augustine. And thus, it becomes part of this Athens-Jerusalem synthesis. But it really isn't a biblical idea. In fact, Timothy, 1 Timothy 6 says very explicitly, God alone is immortal. It's very, very direct. And when Scripture speaks about immortality, it talks about it coming to us from God in Christ as a gift from the outside. We are clothed in immortality in the end. It's not the the revival of an internal gift, as it were. Uh, So, it's a very different anthropology this Greek anthropology, it does not sit well with Jerusalem uh, anthropology. And I believe in the story itself, the implication is very clear. The man has now become like one of us. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life, you see. It's there as a promise, but it's a promise removed, really. And for all we know in Genesis 3, it's gone forever, actually. First time you read it, you don't know how the story is going to end, right? So it looks as if it's just it's gone. It was a possibility once, and now it's gone away. Um, And I think the problem with that idea, one of the problems with that idea, there are many of them. One of the problems with this idea is this idea of the immortality of the soul is that it does tend to blind us to the reality that the biblical story begins in hope. This is a story that's going somewhere because the promise of immortality lies ahead of us in this story. You see, if you think that we had it already, then you're going to inevitably think of kind of a cyclical view. We had it, we lost it, we go back to it. So, it's it's a cyclical view. And that's not a journey, that's not a story, that's not going somewhere else. There's no hope, in a sense, in that, beyond the hope of restoration or retrieval. If you get that idea out of your head, it's a far, far easier thing, then, to see what I think is true, that from the very beginning, creation in Jerusalem is on a journey. It's going somewhere. There is hope that good stuff happens down the road. And that's already embedded in the creation story, because in Jerusalem, creation is open-ended, it's on the way, it's traveling somewhere, and the end is not the beginning, actually. The end is always conceived of as much, much larger than the beginning. So, that's my first uh, answer. Where where is there hope in the Jerusalem story? There's hope right right at the beginning, in those opening uh, chapters. What happens in this story then is, of course, the fall as we refer to it, the entrance of moral evil into our experience. It's not a fall into materiality as it is in Plato, we're already material beings, it's a fall into relational moral evil by human beings who are bodies with souls, as it were. So we're psychosomatic unities, to put it in modern jargon. So creation begins in hope, the train leaves the station, as it were, and turns the first corner and there's a train wreck. More or less, a brief summary of the beginning of the the book of Genesis. And the question is Does hope die in the wreckage? And the answer is well, no, actually, not at all. There is hope even in the midst of evil in this story. It lies in the fact that God pursues his relationship with human beings even after they have embraced evil. So we covered some of this ground earlier. That's a very hopeful account of the world that I gave you earlier. Yes? That God persists. He persists with the with the folks in Genesis 3. He persists with Cain. He persists through the flood to the other side. Right from the beginning, this is a hopeful story. You remember in the Genesis 3 story, they they eat the fruit and God comes walking in the garden looking for them. It's a very early hint. Where are you? He says, you know, he's, he's looking for a response, and we've seen how that is characteristic of the story that follows. God has not given up on the world. It's not clear what that means for the destination of the story yet, but at least the journey continues, and that's a hopeful thing, So, you know, I'm not sure we read um, the early chapters of Genesis with hope, mainly, in our mind, usually, but I think we ought to. Uh, It seems to me intrinsically an extraordinarily hopeful story. So, all the way through all the things we mentioned earlier, and in the aftermath of the flood, this hope is given a kind of structure. It's a covenantal structure. So, we talked about this earlier on, but I didn't call it a covenant, and now I'm adding the vocabulary, right? So, you remember after the flood, the heart of human beings is still pretty wicked, but God says, nevertheless, I'm going to do this, this, and this. And one of the things He does is He makes an everlasting covenant with all living creatures of every kind. Covenant is simply an agreement between two parties in which a relationship is formed. That's really what a covenant is. And you'll notice here, very importantly, that the first covenant covenant that God makes is with creation as a whole. It's not with human beings. So, what God is indicating in Genesis 9 is His ongoing commitment to a relationship with the entirety of of creation." In other words, the plan hasn't changed. It's not that, you know, we tried the whole creation thing, but that didn't work, and now we're just going with human beings. Honestly, that was the idea I picked up, I think, when I was younger. I don't know quite how I did it. I don't suppose I read my Bible very much as the answer, but it's pretty obvious in Genesis 9 that's just wrong. It's not that the whole thing is now done with and destined for the fire and all that stuff, and we. the whole thing is now that God just wants to rescue us from the fire, right? That's more the Buddha, by the way. When the Buddha got his moment of enlightenment, his father tried to persuade him it was not a good idea to leave his wife and child and go and seek for further enlightenment, and the Buddha said, it is wrong to hold a man in the burning house, he said. Uh, That's the idea that I often, I think when I was younger, thought was the Christian idea. Uh, I don't think that now. And Genesis 9 is a large part of the reason. So yeah, the relationship has become strained. It's problematic, it's awkward, it's difficult, there's evil in the world, but in the midst of all of that, God determines to go on blessing the whole of creation, right? That's a very important starting point. So, hope in the midst of evil, and then as we move on, specifically, this ends up being involving a covenant with people. You may remember in Genesis uh, 11, uh, human beings decide to settle down in Mesopotamia and build the Tower of Babel, and God frustrates their plans and scatters them from there all over the earth. Uh, Now, of course, uh, the significance of that is that human beings were made to be fruitful and to multiply and fill the earth. So the people who have decided to settle down and build a tower are fundamentally opposing God, right? They're opposing God's plans for the world by choosing to build a civilization And the interesting thing is, why are they building this civilization? It's very clear in the text, to make a name for themselves, right? So it's not building stuff that's a problem here. It's the posture, the attitude, the plan that's the problem. So they are trying to make a name for themselves. And intriguingly, God's response to that is to call one family out of Mesopotamia, out of Babylonia, And one of the ancestors of that family is named Shem, and Shem is the Hebrew word for name, which is kind of intriguing. In other words, they want to make a name for themselves, Shem, in Mesopotamia, and God responds by calling the family of Shem out of Mesopotamia. The art of that is beautiful. It's just a very nice rhetorical little point, you see. Uh, So, so they want to frustrate God's plans, and God says, well, we're not having that. I have a plan for creation. We're not doing that. We're doing something else. That's what the Tower of Babel story is, is really fundamentally about. And the people that God calls out of Mesopotamia are called out to facilitate this grand creation plan. So, God makes a covenant with Abraham and Abraham's descendants And so, now we have added to a covenant with all living creatures, a covenant with Abraham that has implications for all human beings, right? So, all living creatures, and now all human beings. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the whole of creation at the first level, one level in, all human beings, blessed through Abraham. So Abraham is is being called into this covenantal relationship, not for himself, but for the sake, for the sake of the world, right? That's the big idea. Indeed, there's another little nice bit of literary art here that underlines this because all human beings in Genesis 1 and 2 are placed on the earth to do a certain thing, the Hebrew word Eretz. Abraham inherits a land. It's the same Hebrew word, Eretz. Abraham is called to do in microcosm what the macrocosm is supposed to be like. So it's a kind of a picture pointing to the larger reality, and indeed, I think most aspects of Israel's life are meant to be read as microcosmic pictures of the macrocosmic reality. So the tabernacle represents the the, the sacred temple idea, living in a land justly represents what human beings ought to be doing in the world, and you could go on with that idea. It's a very uh, fertile uh, idea. So, the point here is, the big point is, the story is still going somewhere. There's hope. In fact, there's there's really not any place in Genesis 1 to 12 where there isn't hope, actually. It never goes away because of who God is. That's where the hope lies. It doesn't lie in human beings, but it does lie in the fact that God is committed to uh, creation. And that's how the story goes on, all the way through those shady characters who are the people of God. I had a colleague, uh, Dave Dewart, who was once asked to speak at the Regent College Retreat, and he was asked to speak on the theme of the family of God, and I think the people who asked him thought that this would be a rather nice, cuddly little sermon series, and he basically chose to do four addresses on Genesis, and he'd say, there you are, folks, the people of God. Uh, Pretty disastrous bunch of people uh, on the whole. But the promise survives, why? Well, because God is God, right? It survives all sorts of threats. If you want to read Genesis again and you're looking for a way of getting a handle on the big idea, look on it in this way, that there's a promise that's constantly under threat and the threats are overcome. So think how many threats there are. Famine, huge recurrent threat. Uh, Abraham's cowardice, pretending that Sarah is not his wife, which obviously is gonna bring the whole story to a pretty abrupt end, you know, possibly. Uh, So that has to get sorted out. So the danger of powerful men, the danger of famine, the problem of childlessness is a huge threat to the promise and that is explicitly addressed a number of times. And then the major threat, the very poor character of the people involved. So these are the people who carry the promise, but the promise is vulnerable. (coughs) So, this this, this promise idea, the promise to Abraham, is the major organizing theme of the entire Pentateuch. That's really what carries you all the way through to the end of the book of Deuteronomy. In the middle, we have the Exodus, of course, and the Exodus adds a layer to this idea. Uh, Moses leads them out, and they go to Mount Sinai, and in Exodus 19, they are urged to be a certain kind of people. And the text says this, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Right? So, they're a special people, But why are they a special people? Is it because God has given up on all the other people groups and decided just to go with one? Well, no, because they are to be a kingdom of priests. Now, what do priests do? Priests mediate the blessing of God to other people. So, a kingdom of priests is a whole nation that's to do that, right? to mediate the blessing of God to the rest of the world. So, We've, in a way, we've narrowed down in covenant, all living creatures, all people groups, one people, but all of these covenants have their eye on the, on the, the larger ballgame, which is the redemption of creation, right? All of these are a means to another end. God's people are not called as an end in themselves. Uh, we would be well advised to ponder that point, I think, in the church, because we sometimes give the impression, unfortunately, even to ourselves, that we think we are the ball game, as it were. I think that's wrong. Uh, we are recruited by God to do God's work in the world. We are, we are means to larger ends. We are not the end. And so, we go on in the story. We're, we're rushing along. Uh, we get to King David, 2 Samuel 7. Uh, we're in the monarchy now, Has hope disappeared? Not at all. God now makes a covenant with one Israelite. So, you see where we've gone, all living creatures, all human beings, one people group, one person in the people group. And God makes a covenant with David. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed, etc. So, there's this idea of an everlasting commitment to the dynasty of David. This is now an intrinsic part of God's plan, even though the monarchy was a hugely problematic request, you remember, but God has accommodated Himself to that request and made use of the monarchy, and so the promise to David becomes critical to the whole business, and when the Gospels identify Jesus, among other things, as the son of David, we know what's going on, as it were, or we should. So, uh, we can put this in a pictorial form thus, some of you will recognize one of these things because we live in older times, this used to be used as an egg timer in the years before technology in your kitchen, you've seen these things, you have a, a kind of, you see it's narrow in the middle and wider and you run sand through it and it's timed so that you know when your egg is done when all the sand runs from the top to the bottom. Some of you are looking at me as if I'm absolutely crazy and you don't know, but trust me, this is what we used to do. This is how it was. So, because it's wide at the top and narrow in the middle, it's a great illustration of covenant because we're narrowing in. We start at the outside margin, covenant with creation, covenant with all people, covenant with Israel, covenant with one Israelite. Hope narrows down in a way in the story but it's always with an eye to the bigger picture. So, hope remains. And we'll come back to this diagram uh, shortly. Then we get uh, to the biblical prophets. I mean, in the literature we get next to the prophets. Of course, they're preaching all the way through this historical period. But if we're just thinking of the prophets at the moment as a body of literature, uh, when we read the prophets. Of course, they presuppose the broken state of creation, the way in which it's been compromised by uh, evil. But of course, they look forward to a time in which the three broken relationships we talked about yesterday are all of them healed. So you remember we said in the Christian vision, what's the right way of being is to be in right relationship with God and with your neighbor and with the rest of creation. Those are the relationships that are broken. And the prophets talk about three transformations that are related to the three dysfunctions. And beyond the fixing of those problems, they also look further to an entirely new order of things. So it's not just a fixing of old problems. It's also going on beyond to something new. So, for example, uh, the forces of cosmic darkness will certainly be defeated, and the suffering that has come into the world as a result will be abolished. That's addressing problems in, in the creation. But more than that, they say, the whole of creation will be transformed. And as one aspect of that, it turns out that human beings get immortality after all. So these are new things. These are not things that have been part of our experience. These are new things. So it's both addressing the problems, but also taking us on to where it looks as if we were supposed to be going all the time. It was always going there, and evil complicated it, but we're back on track now through Christ, and and on we go. Um, Let's just think a bit about these three transformations, although it's awfully hard to summarize the prophetic literature in five minutes, but we'll give it an outline go. Uh, The prophets speak about the transformation of the human relationship with God, the intimate relationship of the garden restored, Uh, God bringing his people back from exile, first of all, Uh, the Israelites, of course, but uh, in the larger scheme of things, the notion of eschatological forgiveness, forgiveness at the end of time, uh, forgiveness broadly distributed, the sins of the past washed away, a new heart, a new spirit. These are all bits of language that you'll recognize. Uh, Forgiveness, but also transformation, not just involving the Israelites, but involving the Gentiles too, all people, the Abraham promise. Sometimes in the New Testament, the gospel can all but be summarized simply as the Abraham promise has come to be now. This is where we are at the present moment. So we have a degree of restoration uh, in terms of what originally is there in the Genesis story, but in the future, the prophets say, evil will not be able to reenter the story. That's a new thing right? It's a new phase. God's law is now written on the heart in a way that it was not before. So there are new things in this. It's not just a a return. The same is true of the transformation of human community, Um, the whole loving your neighbor bit. So we are often alienated not just from God but from each other. Uh, The prophetic texts talk about the restoration of community in Israel, first of all. They talk about a righteous king, many of the prophets do, who will govern this society. It will be a a society marked by justice and peace, in which a descendant of David will shepherd the flock, Ezekiel chapter 34, in which there will be uh, transformative activity, So, this righteous king in Isaiah chapter 11, for example, will deliver the needy and the poor from the oppressors. Uh, That's a very important idea. But the transformation is a much larger thing than simply restoring what has gone wrong once again. And we'll see that particularly clearly when we get to the transformation of creation, just in a second. So, a new society with just government, that works well, where there is shalom. And the third transformation is, of course, the transformation of creation itself, which is what we ought to expect in terms of how this story has been set up. Uh, Genesis uh, sets before us the ideal of the human relationship with non-human creation, It talks about the way in which that is disrupted and spoiled, and the prophets, of course, uh, quite unsurprisingly, really, if we read the whole story well, uh, anticipate that that's going to be addressed too. So, Ezekiel chapter 36, key passage in this whole thing. You can read that later. Hosea chapter 2, verse 18 In that day I, God, will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and the birds of the air and the creatures that move along the ground. Bow and sword and battle I will abolish from the land so that all may lie down in safety. All creatures, you see, not just human beings. Covenant with the animals, a very beautiful uh, picture. Part of what will… Characterize this new creation as apparently safety for the animals from human predation, uh, which, as far as we can tell, has never been the case in the world we know about. Um, As far as we can tell, as somebody once said, it's most unlikely that the saber toothed tiger was given his teeth so he could eat vegetables, uh, which is a a kind of uh, quirky, little jokey way of putting it, but you see my point. I mean, predation appears to be built into our world. But in Isaiah 11, you get this wonderful vision of cosmic peace. The wolf lies down with the lamb and so on. That whole idea. Uh, In our present order, as Woody Allen once said, the wolf may lie down with the lamb, but the lamb will always look distinctly nervous. Uh, 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 (laughs) but, But Isaiah 11 gives us this wonderful picture of cosmic peace. It's it's a new, it's a new dimension of reality, it seems, as we're going onwards. It's not just back to the beginning, I don't think. Uh, The sound of weeping will never again be heard, we are told in some of these texts. Death will be swallowed up forever. The resurrection of the body, these are all Old Testament uh, themes. Job uh, hopes that after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I will see God. So, it's a kind of resurrection kind of text. So, evidently, there's hope in the biblical prophets. So, we've been through quite a bit of the Old Testament now, and everywhere we look, there is hope, all the way through the narrative, all the way through the prophetic writings. And it is, of course, this hope that is then announced as fulfilled in the New Testament, although it turns out in due course that it hasn't quite altogether arrived yet. But it's announced, and then we discover later, actually, though, it turns out there's another phase to that when Christ returns. But in the New Testament, we are told, of course, that the hope of immortality once removed has been restored. As Paul says, Jesus has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the gospel, 2 Timothy chapter 1. So, death w- was there uh, over against immortality in the story of Genesis after this entrance of evil, but in the New Testament we are told again and again that Christ comes to give us life. Uh, Who is this Jesus that is being spoken about? He's the one who makes the new covenant with us. So there's the latest in that covenant series. And it's in this new covenant that all the other covenants find their fulfillment. uh, In all sorts of ways, but not not the least of which is in the forgiveness of sin. Um, So the prophets look forward to this eschatological forgiveness of sin and in the Gospels, one of the major points that's made, you remember, is that Jesus forgives sin, and it scandalizes everybody. And what he's really saying is, that hope has touched down here, folks. It hasn't completely come yet, but these are signs. These are pointers to the way it is. Take heart, uh, he says to one of the people, he meets the paralyzed man in Matthew 9, take heart your sins are forgiven. The atoning sacrifice that lies behind all of that, of course, is connected again to Old Testament texts, and Jesus talks about the new covenant in my blood poured out for you. So, the covenant series is touching down in this new covenant, and that takes us back to the picture so, here's, here's, a, here's a nice pictorial way of thinking about the whole Bible. Think of it in terms of a series of covenants made by God to express commitment to the world and to show us the means by which that takes place. So, a covenant with all creation, with all people, with Israel, and with one Israelite, David, in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we begin with one Israelite, Jesus, right? One Israelite, the son of David, who first of all goes to look for the lost sheep of Israel. But before you know it, we're talking about Jews and Gentiles all together, And the apostle Paul then goes on to say that all creation is groaning as in the pains of childbirth, waiting for the redemption of the sons of God, waiting for the image bearers, to to be back in a condition where they can do their job. That's how I read uh, Romans chapter 8. So, what is it in this great story that Jesus saves? Is it just the Israelites? Well, no. Is it just Jews plus Gentiles? No. In Christ, God reconciles all of creation to Himself, and this shouldn't be surprising. I mean, once you see the big picture, you see where the text, the individual text, fit. Uh, You see this particularly powerfully, I think, in Revelation chapter 21, where you have this new order of things described, and of course, the picture in Revelation is partly a return to the garden, in the sense that you have garden imagery in the picture of the New Jerusalem, But it's not just the garden. The garden is also the city. And I take that to represent the reality that we're not simply going backwards, but that everything good that has been achieved in between times is also taken up in the new Jerusalem. So, in as short a compass as I can manage without being completely superficial, that is what Jerusalem has to say about hope. We live, says Jerusalem, the, the spokesmen for Jerusalem say, we live in a world sure in which an enormous amount has gone wrong. For sure, that's right. Uh, people don't worship God. They worship idols instead. There's an immense amount of injustice and evildoing and suffering, an enormous amount of neglect and damage of God's creation. This is true in individual societies, say the prophets. It's also true in the international arena, they say. But God is at work in the world, turning things to good. God has always been at work in the world from the beginning, turning things to good. And a day is coming when justice will come, a day of justice, a day of salvation, in which universal peace will be established in a new world order. That's the great biggest version of the Jerusalem story. And I want to do two things with that uh, by way of coming to my uh, conclusion. Two reflections on, on this great vision. The first one has to do with the question I raised earlier about Jerusalem's view of the future in relation to the past over against the worldview of Athens and other cities, other worldviews. I really want to try and underline here that although in some ways Jerusalem hopes for a return to Eden, the biblical vision is one that moves beyond Eden and into a reality in which we have never lived before, the reality of the new Jerusalem. The new Jerusalem involves astonishing realities like the resurrection of the dead. It involves uh, amazing things like the swallowing up of death forever. It is, I think, not so much a return to the beginning. It is better thought of as an arrival at the ending that was always going to be the ending. There's a trajectory. Think of, really, the Jerusalem idea is that time is an arrow. That's a good way of putting it, I think. Time is an arrow. It's shot from the bow, and it goes somewhere, yes? Time is not a circle. Time is an arrow. Story is built into the fabric of things. What was promised in the beginning as the ending immortality, becomes a reality in the ending. The ending was never in doubt, I think, in this story because God is God. It's not a dualistic cosmos, right? It's not Star Wars. The ending was never in doubt. Only the path taken to get there was in doubt. God's story is a story of many twists and turns, But the destination, I believe, has always remained a destination. It's always been a journey onwards. Uh, Now, that is not necessarily a a common perception in Christian minds. And I think it is not a common perception for the reason mentioned earlier, that Plato has has really messed with our heads a bit on this kind of issue. Here's how the, the big picture looks on the Platonist-Christian synthesis idea. On that idea, God creates a perfect world with perfect creatures in it, including human beings with immortal souls. In this world, there is no pain, no moral or natural evil, and no physical death. Then human beings embrace evil, And consequently, we have a damage-created order, a radically imperfect world, not at all like the first one. Human sin brings death and decay to all life and changes not only our relationships on this view, but all natural processes as well, from childbirth through to how the earth's tectonic plates function, etc. and so on. So a radically imperfect world quite unlike the first one. On this view, Christ enters the world to deal with all these problems and the consequence is that we get to return to the perfect world with which we began. That's one way of telling the story. It's a very common way of telling the story, I think. It's a back to the beginning kind of a a story. I think there there are very real problems with thinking of the story in this way. And I've tried to point out in the last two weeks what some of these problems are. I don't believe it's the best way of framing the Jerusalem story. I think it has much more to do with Plato than it has to do with the Bible. A better way of thinking about the story is this, I believe. God created a good world already on a journey to a destination that was different from the beginning. Uh, Things got messed up a bit by moral evil. Um, All sorts of things uh, happened. In the meantime, uh, Christ came to deal with what had gone wrong so that we could move onwards to where we were going in the first place. That's the difference between the two stories, really. I mean, you'll see that many of the bits and pieces are the same. It's how you frame them, actually, what you think the best way of framing uh, these stories uh, is. Um, and I think that this greatly helps us with some uh, difficulties uh, that we have with the other story. Perhaps we don't recognize the, the difficulties with the other stories as often as we uh, need to notice them. Uh, I mean, there is the, the whole business of how the world functions and whether there's any real scientific evidence that the world has ever functioned differently. And so there are all sorts of questions of faith and science, quite apart from anything else, that become much easier to handle, I think, in this reframed version of the story. And that's a, that's an added benefit, if you like. I mean, to me, the main question is which way of putting it is is more scriptural. But it's also important, I think, to, to uh, we would expect the truth of Scripture to cohere with other kinds of truth. I think that's what it means to say the story is true, uh, actually. Uh, So, as I say, I'm going to leave that sitting there. Um, It's just a summary of much of uh, what we've uh, been doing. My second reflection uh, is a broader one, and with this we will finish. Um, The Christian (coughs) hope… has often been misunderstood in the modern period, and by Christians perhaps themselves to some extent, as devaluing the present in relation to the future. Uh, This is a a very frequent critique out there, uh, particularly among those who think that Christians are responsible partly for the ecological crisis, because the argument is, well, your Christian hope, you know, it makes you otherworldly and you just don't care enough about the world we live in, right? That's the critique. And so, the question I want to just finish with is, should biblical hope lead us to devalue the present, uh, to adopt a passive attitude uh, in the present? Um, I would say that, in fact, biblical faith requires of us a very high valuing of the present, God's world. After all, biblical faith says that creation is God's temple cosmos, his garden, his kingdom over which he's already king. God lives here with us, provides for us and blesses us here along with God's other creatures. God is present in particular ways like tabernacle and temple, microcosmic realities reflecting macrocosmic realities God in biblical thinking is not somewhere else rather than here. God is here with us in this world and has chosen to be with us in this world, and we are to live in this good world, God's world, and to take care of it as sacred space. I would say that's the kind of moral imperatives arising from some of what we've been uh, saying. Now, for sure, in biblical Jerusalem thinking, for sure, we are also heading for something even better. Absolutely. Better because, of course, among other things, this world has been touched by evil and stuff, right? So it's obviously we're heading for something better. But I want to propose this, that the better that we're heading for is, in fact, another version of what we already know. It's not so much that we're heading somewhere else, we're heading some-when else. I know that's a non-word, by the way, but I'm just saying. It's not so much somewhere else, but some-when else. Time must pass before the world becomes what it is destined to be, before the kingdom becomes fully God's and we arrive at the destination time must pass in biblical thinking, but I don't believe that it is envisaged that we should change our space. So, let me just leave that hanging there. That's a, that's a kind of complicated thought. Let me put it a, a number of different ways to try and get at it. In biblical faith, we do not fly off to some other realm, becoming spiritual instead of material beings, Right? resurrection of the body and stuff, kind of crucial. So, it's not about spirits escaping material prisons, right? It's not flying off into the clouds. The new heavens and the new earth are exactly that, a new heavens and a new earth, right? And that should be a bit of a giveaway. The new earth is not a place inhabited by disembodied souls, it is a place inhabited by resurrected bodies with their souls. It's fundamental to orthodox Christian belief. In biblical thinking, what comes next is deeply continuous with what we know now, although it will be discontinuous in certain ways. Now, think about Jesus' resurrection body, and you'll get the point. Deeply continuous, they still recognize Him to be Jesus. But in some ways unusual in the resurrection narratives, yes? That's a very it's a very good predictor, I think, of, of what we are to expect. So although the Bible doesn't go into detail, I think we can say fundamentally continuous and also somewhat discontinuous is, is how the next phase of existence will be. And there is, in all of what I've just said, no devaluing of the present world at all. It would be entirely wrong and wrong-headed and foolish and actually quite wicked for Christians to take a view of the present world that it's only really a kind of doctor's waiting room until I go in and see the guy, as it were, or or some such thing. It's impossible, really, for anyone inhabiting the story that we've been telling in this last two weeks to take a casual, trivializing view of the world in which we live now and our responsibility in it. Better is not at the expense of good, right? So, we are going there, and that is indeed the very reason we should pay attention, in fact, to the right way of living here. And all of that implies that passivity is not on the agenda either. It's not that Christian hope Uh, leads us, or it should not lead us, to passivity in relation to our lives here. I would say that the the opposite is true, that Christian hope is what keeps one going in the midst of very challenging circumstances. Um, I spoke to somebody recently who is very much on the inside of the, the green ecological movement, and he said, the greatest challenging, challenge facing that movement is despair. The task seems impossible. It seems inevitable we're going to trash the planet, so what's the point of recycling or going out on those Greenpeace, or whatever they do, right? The biggest problem those very idealistic folk have is despair, because they don't have a big, a big enough story, right? And so, and you, you well know, despair basically is a bad thing. It, it immobilizes you. It makes you just give up. What I can't make a difference, and so on. And I would say that the Christian story properly understood is a faith in which God still lives in this temple cosmos with us. God is still at work in this world, drawing it toward the good. God's kingdom is coming for sure, there's no doubt about it. Good wins out over evil. And there is every reason then for small, futile actions each day. Because they're not futile. They're the breadcrumbs that will be gathered up, as it were, into something very significant. To have biblical faith, I think, is to participate actively in the work of God in the world, doing challenging things precisely because you know that this story has a happy ending. And everything from changing nappies through to whatever, the other, that just happens to be in my mind at the moment, you know, think of the most humdrum things that you kind of get fed up with. It could be anything. And try and just reframe your thinking about that and say, you know, everything about my life here is significant. Do you remember that C.S. Lewis story, Um, The Magician's Nephew? Great story. It's the one that comes chronologically before The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. In The Magician's Nephew, there's a, a human couple who turn out, to their great surprise, they are crowned the first king and queen of Narnia and they're astonished because in their previous life he was a taxi driver and she was a stay-at-home mom and and they hadn't done anything they said with their lives and Lewis Lewis just so often nails these truths right And, and it turns out it's precisely because they got on with their ordinary lives and did them all with such diligence and care and compassion and love, that's what qualified them actually to be the king and queen of Narnia. (coughs) From the biblical perspective, hope is what enables us to keep on going even when we fail spectacularly to deliver. (coughs) Hope is what keeps us going when we discover that we are David who has so fallen so spectacularly in the midst of our (coughs) calling Uh, to keep on pursuing the vision, to keep on pursuing the the kingdom in the midst of challenging circumstances. When uh, the the psalmist looks over the road and he sees the prosperity of the wicked, almost my foot had slipped, hope is what keeps you back on the road and going, uh, in the belief that in fact it is true that there will be justice and accountability, and we thank God, don't have to be the only ones concerned about delivering it, because if that were true, that would be a disaster. So, my closing point is this, that hope is not the opposite of agency in biblical thinking. Hope is the wellspring of agency. Hope is the engine of agency. Hope is what allows love to persevere. And I'm almost finishing with this wonderful little poem by Emily Dickinson. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. In biblical thinking, hope is love's servant. It's not something that undercuts love's incentive. The Apostle Paul, these three remain, faith, hope, and love, but the greatest of these is love. Hope is not the greatest thing. Love is the greatest thing, but hope is absolutely essential, actually, to the whole project nonetheless. (laughs) Um, And anyone who tells you otherwise otherwise is not representing Jerusalem, (laughs) he's representing something else. And that's where I'm going to stop.
0: Well, that was fabulous. Hope uh, is very interesting. Um, There's another major response to the trashing of hope. Um, Certainly in the work that we do in Second Road, um, we do strategy and one of the biggest things we have to do all the time is create vision. And if there is no vision, then nobody can work. And so many organisations are existing without vision and people are crying out for the vision, which is hope you know what's the destiny Um, and without that um, uh, people are confused so uh, and they're uninspired so So the uh, the practical contribution of hope to human agency and productivity is certainly uh, something that uh, I live with in all of my work and see it every day uh lisa you're also doing a um, really interesting doctorate aren't you on hope can you tell us a little bit about that since we've just heard about hope i think it's, this is very important work that lisa's doing
2: thanks tani hello um i'm doing a, a psychology phd it's interdisciplinary with some theology a bit of philosophy into it In uh, the world of psychology, there's a lot of research on hope, but it's defined simply as, are you clear on your goals? Have you been successful in the past achieving your goals? And do you have lots of pathways to achieve them? And my argument is that's not hope. (laughs) That's been good at achieving goals. So, um, I'm coming up with a a different way of understanding it and measuring it. I've been fascinated with this last session, Um, which has two parts. One is, as Tony said, you have to have a vision for your future... And this is not just hope for Christians. This is going to be hope. Hopefully, this measure will be used across secular psychology. So, on the one hand, as do do people have a sense that their life is part of a bigger story, whatever story that is? Because I think, without that sense of a meta narrative, it's very hard to have hope. The second part is. Um, Do you have a sense that the future is not only going to be meaningful in the story but also be enjoyable? Hope implies a better future. So, Maltman recently talked about hope as anticipated joy, which I thought was just such a beautiful expression. But the second part, so one sense is a vision of the future, but the second part is all about agency, that hope implies agency both a waiting agency, which I've called latent, that idea that you have to, we have to be able to cope in a difficult present. It's when we need hope. But also proxy agency, the way hope is used in psychology. There is no scope to hope in God or hope in your team or hope in a surgeon. It's just all about your own goal success. So I'm introducing an idea of being able to hope not only in yourself and your own agency but also in others. Interestingly, I've just done my first round of statistics. um, I've sent out questionnaires to 400 people. And the personal agency (coughs) aspect of it, which is just about your own past goal success, just dropped out of the statistical analysis. And I was left with that most people feel that hope is about uh, that idea of proxy or... Waiting. You don't need to have been successful in the past to have hope, but you do need a sense of what you're waiting for mm. um, and that bigger picture. Wonderful. So that's, um, yeah, I'm still in the middle of it, so <laughs> <Fantastic>. <laughs> more work to be done. Great. Thank you, Ian. I was really interested in that. That's
0: fantastic. <coughs> yeah, I, I, I just think that's one of the great examples, the work mm. Lisa's doing of... Uh, mm. The, at the level of a thought leadership, applying the, new, the theology of hope into the mm. world of psychology, because mm. as you said, it's actually underdone on hope. Wonderful. So, uh, questions? <coughs> Last week
3: I came here, and I described the, uh, the impact as being the Wallaby 5-8, getting involved yeah. with the... Yeah. I feel a lot better today. Okay. I feel like Stephen Larkham. With the uh, field just opening up and popping a field goal to win the uh, semi-final in the 19... (laughs) Oh, 91, is it? Yeah. Okay. (laughs) A lot better. Going back to uh, before lunch, uh, we talked a lot about worldview, and there's been a lot of discussion about worldview and uh, its emphasis on the world of ideas as opposed to (coughs) the practical world. That is, uh, worldview is often seen... Uh, in a very headspace, whereas rea- in reality, it's actually about the things that we create and make. Mm. Do you want to mm. comment on that, or is that just too hard?
1: No, that's really good. I mean, I, I just think that perhaps there are just unfortunate dichotomies that arise here. I mean, I, I don't really, I don't really recognise an ultimate distinction between theory and practice. I mean. Theory that gets out of step with lived experience, by and large, is pretty useless for most people. I, I guess quantum physicists can be exempted, but um, for the most part, I'm very suspicious of ideas that people are not living and do not appear capable of, you know, actually acting out. I mean, theory is best thought of, I think, as reflection on practice, which then reflects back and hopefully leads you off, having reflected on it, to. Uh, more effective living, and and so on. Um, And you know the old adage, there's nothing more practical than a good idea. Um, And I really believe that. I I think that um, for all sorts of unhappy reasons, uh, we have tended to oppose theory and practice. And I just think we should never let ourselves off the hook on that in either of those directions. I think what we've been talking about in the last two weeks is Pretty high level intellectual work, but I think it's absolutely fundamentally deeply practical. Because if you really do believe these things, then in fact you're going to live in very particular practical ways. Um, so, yeah, I'm very relaxed about that question, I suppose. I, yeah.
4: Yeah. Uh, Uh, I'd like to ask a clarification question about um, a couple of slides back when you were comparing the two um, final approaches that you had. Mm -hmm. Um, It reminded me a little bit of John Hick's book, Evil and the God of Love. Uh Um, John Hick, uh, are you familiar with the Mm -hmm. book? Yeah. So John Hick, um, I think, was a British uh, Presbyterian minister. Mm -hmm. And in the book he, he outlined... Um, an approach to theodicy, yeah. which seems to, to line up quite well with the, the two views that you put. And mm. he had a section where he talked about um, the explanation of uh, evil from a Western Christian perspective, so yeah. broadly Roman Catholic and Protestant. Mm. And he, I think one of the chapters was um, Augustine, the founding head of Western theology. mm mm-hmm. And then he had a, another section, another chapter, where he, he had a, um, an approach from St Irenaeus of Lyon. Mm-hmm. And he said that that approach was really more characteristic of Eastern Christianity, mm-hmm. by which he meant mainly Eastern Orthodox Christianity. Mm-hmm. And a, as I looked at the two approaches that you put up there, and, and actually over the whole uh, two weeks, the, the approach seems to have come across, to me at least, as very much that Saint Irenaeus of Lyon perspective. Yes. Um, I, I <coughs> attend a Russian Orthodox Church and have done for about 15 years but I was mm. raised as a Protestant mm. and having read John Hicks book it sort of mm. brought those two approaches very clearly yeah. into sight for me. Yeah. Um, have I understood you correctly? Is that so, sort of what you're getting at with these two approaches?
1: It is. It is what I'm getting at although I never want to blame anyone else for my ideas, whether they be august church fathers or august modern theologians, so, I mean, I take responsibility for these ideas, but are they well rooted in tradition and Orthodox Christian thinking, and indeed, do they pop up in more recent modern scholarship? Yeah, they do, and, you know, I would not be surprised by that. There really isn't anything new under the sun on the whole. Well, with a few exceptions, I guess. But for the most part, lots of thoughtful people have reflected on these kinds of issues over the ages. And the question for us all is just which of those ideas appear to be, in fact, the most accurate, the most helpful, the most biblical, the most fruitful. And I really do like a lot of what Irenaeus is about. And I really do think that Augustine's Neoplatonism was uh, was an unhelpful weight, hanging around his neck a bit, and it particularly affected some of his thinking and through him other people, not for the best, actually. Um, so yes, you're, you're dead on on, on finding R- RNS there for sure, absolutely, yeah,
0: yeah.
2: Any other questions, Tanya? <laughs> well, here's one. If the law, accommodated their current situation, and Jesus spoke of love as the penultimate fulfilment of the law. Mm -hmm. What should be our general perspective of Old Testament law now?
1: Um, (coughs) I think our perspective should be something like this. That God's character, which is an ongoing, stable, eternal thing... God's character is reflected in Old Testament law in all sorts of ways, and all sorts of parts of the Old Testament law do appear to represent high-order principles, principles of character and so on, that we ought still to pay attention to. So being generous is still a good thing, loving your neighbor is still a good thing, loving your enemies and so on and so forth. Now, in addition to that, Old Testament law touches down in a particular people group, at a particular time, in a particular culture, in circumstances. And so a lot of the if such and such happens, this should happen stuff, well, the if is not going to apply really, not directly anyway. So there may be things that we can learn from that law nonetheless in terms of principles underlying them. But we'd be unwise, I think, just to do a this, therefore that kind of thing. So, Leviticus says that, and so we should do this. We have to be more thoughtful than that. Um, I think there's quite a bit of the Old Testament law that really doesn't apply at all to the people of God now. Uh, and it's not, that's not just a matter of picking and choosing. You can actually argue that through in a systematic, coherent way. But let me take a, an intermediate example um, think of the law about allowing poor people to glean the edges of your field. Now, in some parts of the world, Christians probably still do, in India maybe, um, or in any agricultural environment, they may well still own fields. And in fact, that law, just as written, may actually still be a really good idea, right? Because you're looking after the marginalised. Not everyone has land, and it might actually apply in a fairly straightforward way. Uh, But the principle behind it, as far as I can see, is that profit maximization is a bad thing, if I can put it that way. That there's more to our lives as economic producers than profit maximization, and we should never behave as if we had absolute rights to the stuff we own, Uh, to the exclusion of looking after the marginalized and the poor. I take that to be the underlying principle. That principle is still, I think, a moral vision, biblical principle. The fact that it's clothed in a particular cultural way doesn't mean that we can't actually see how it might be a good thing to do. So I would say that Old Testament law is different kinds of things, and as long as we are working hard to differentiate the different kinds of things, we won't make category mistakes. Uh, When it says, you know, do not commit adultery, that's still pretty good advice. Uh, When it says, allow gleaning, that's pretty good advice. We have to just do a little bit of translation. And when it says, do not boil a kid in its mother's milk, well, nobody knows what that means anyway, and I've never come across the point at which that became relevant to my life yet, and I don't expect ever to, to do so. So I'm from pretty safe ground in assuming that was for them and not for me. So a thoughtful, reflective, place it in the context of the whole story, expect to learn things, but don't be surprised if sometimes what you learn is that seems to have been a very good thing for them, but it's not really for now. Um, That can be a very disciplined, sober uh, engagement. It's not random and arbitrary and just, I like this when I don't, in fact, it shouldn't be that, really. This idea of just picking this one, not the other one, that's just not serious.
5: Yeah. Ian, uh, this morning you uh, masterfully portrayed for us what I think of as an intensely um, uh, incarnational kind of uh, God who is at work in this broken, fallen world, using what he's got and willing to limit himself um, as indeed God in Christ. Right. Uh, surrenders so much of what he could have done. Mm-hmm. You move from there to to saying so. So what we're really looking for is the nudge, right? The the thing that that just moves society, moves our situation in a slightly positive way. Yeah. This afternoon, by focusing on hope, you seem to be saying that this is the nudge hope is what (coughs) Mm -hmm. moves that society in that direction right i'm just wondering whether i've read you well Mm -hmm. and whether there might be other things that constitute the nudge apart from hope
1: great question i would say that hope is a large part of the engine that keeps us wanting to nudge at all um and having confidence that are apparently limited, nudging means something, but I think the nudging, and that may be a bad word because it, it, it's a word that implies an expectation of limited success. I may want to repent of the word nudge. Um, sometimes maybe all we can do is nudge, but If Wilberforce had believed only that, he would never have done what he did against insuperable odds. So let's repent of nudge right away. I'm sorry I ever used the word. Let's say that we operate in hope and expectation that God being with us in the world, we are capable of achieving numerous different kinds of things. And sometimes they want to appear very large, and other times they may appear larger. And we shouldn't limit ourselves in advance by words like nudge. uh, we should operate in this hopeful, open-ended, agency, dominion, you know, let's see, actually, what we can do. Um, so there is more to it than, than just hope, but without hope, I don't think we could get going or sustain the enterprise. I mean, that's my experience in, in my own life, uh, particularly coming, in my case, from a rather pessimistic culture to begin with. So. Um, learning to live in a different story has been somewhat of a challenge, uh, actually, um, but I'm profoundly convinced that this is the right story. It's just that, like all of you, I have to talk to myself a bit about that and when I get up in the morning, kind of remind myself of that. and My friends have to talk to me about it. So, there's all sorts of ways in which you... But hope is is central to that, isn't it? I think it is, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, Could I um, respond by giving both of you uh, a a bit of design theory, (laughs) Um, which I think is really relevant and really important. Mm. This is yet to be worked through into a theology, but I don't think we're far from it. Um so in the world that we live in in second row we run on the abcd model which uh you've heard me talk about now in that model uh the b represents hope so what we at, at the moment we're doing uh we're negotiating a huge project which i can't mention because it, it's actually it's, it's at the level of really redesigning a state so let's just leave it at that level with multiple players involved government private enterprise, academia, and um, with, with a lot of people who are relying upon us and me to say this can be done. So the first thing we're going to do is get people to have hope, which means articulate a vision of the kind of world they want to build. So that's an enterprise mm. in human hope. It will require a combination of imagination and desire. We, we would call that creating a strategic intent. Um, and that has to be constructed. That hope has to be constructed. It's mm-hmm. it's a, it's almost like a hope for a new, a, you know, a it, it could be called a short-term hope. But in their particular case, it will be things like what kind of community and world do you want to build for your children? Um, as a Christian, and everyone is kind of scared, and but they're trading off not just our methodologies, but in a way, me personally. And, you know, why aren't I scared? Well, I'm not scared because I'm called to right. alter reality. Yeah, I, I'm not scared. I can declare that to everybody, whether they're Christians or not. But that's all hope, and hope is not a method. Mm-hmm. So in our model, that's just A to B. Mm-hmm. Now, a great example of this, which I think I've shared with you, is Gandhi. I've shared the Gandhi story. Yeah. 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 Um, yes. The abysmal failure story. The Gandhi was an abysmal failure by an Indian academic. Um, because Gandhi was an A to B man, but he had no Cs, Radio, So hope won't get you there. It won't change everything. And God, So in our model, the C is what we would call design. Design is not hope. Design, how does design work? Well, a critical issue for us, the big word I use all the time, is levers, not lists. You've got to find levers to shift a big system. Now, leverage is really an important, and I'm convinced it's an utterly deep theological Mm. concept. What does a lever mean? Well, this is, a lever is, it it works in nature, but I like the idea of synecdoche out of metaphor, where I represent the whole by the part. Most of us think, you know, if I want to run a big system, I've got to have a huge coverage of leverage lists of things to do to run it. Whereas what we, I believe, is no you don't, you just need, say, six good ideas and those levers can pivot the entire system. Now, Wilberforce did that. Mm-hmm. If you look at Wilberforce's store and this is where you just have got to be smart. I mean, Lisa, is you've got to get into a, th- into a world like psych and you've got to work at it and you've got to know the system because if you don't know the system, you don't know what levers to pull. Um, you know, whether it's technology, whether it's community, this is, whether it's health, there's levers to pull. And uh, some people are, are brilliant at identifying the levers, that's what Gandhi did not have, he did not have levers to shift a country. Um, and uh, But, so, then this is where just sheer subject matter, not en- let's call it engaging with a local context, like God did. I mean, I, I've actually got to get down and dirty. If it's India, I've got to know India. If it's technology or if it's the slave trade. Now, what, I mean, it's very interesting when I read Wilberforce's story for, as a designer. So one example was mass communication mm-hmm. and, and qualitative research. They broke the mould on qualitative research. Um, they actually went out and did thousands of interviews with ship's captains mm-hmm. and they, they quantified it. Um tremendous communication they created some of the best pamphlets that you 'll ever see uh, with a diagram of a ship you know as designed and then as full of convicts um, and uh and then in in legis- i forget there was a breakthrough they made in legislation around flags uh, that the ships had to carry that was just it was a, they spun that was the break oh, i oh, yeah. 'll have to just look something like that someone who knew the 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 whole maritime system and they snuck it through parliament because nobody got it was a lever that if they changed that small regulation on the flags that ships had to display it would actually it would neuter the slave trade and it's actually quite a it was such a dramatic story because the vote was passed in parliament uh, and uh, only as it was getting to be passed did some people realize that There was this great rush to get enough anti people they didn't get enough people there against the vote it was passed so real smarts about how to change the system and um so that's where this Mm. there's a big difference between leverage and design and hope um i think it's what we're called i don't know a theological world for it, but i I certainly know a a theological argument for it because it hit me one day and i know exactly where i was i was driving down the south coast and I was thinking of synecdoche, my favourite, uh, really, trope, because it's the trope whereby I represent the whole by the part. And it's scale change. That, in other words, I can run a system by running just a bit of it. And it suddenly hit me that the greatest example of scale change and scale leverage, argued in Romans 5, is I'm going to solve the problems of the cosmos In one life in three days. There's no bigger scale leverage than it. I actually can solve everybody's problems, it'll come down to one man, two men and that's the whole Romans 5, Adam and Christ. And so Mm. as we can believe whatever sphere and sandpit we're called to play in, it doesn't matter what it is, there's almost a job to do to be as good as we can at it, know how the thing works, be it education, be it health, Just like Wilberforce was an extremely smart man, and so Mm. were his friends. He wasn't on his own, as we know. There were about twenty of them. They were very, very smart. And think about the world we're in. The context we're in, but we can. I think the theological faith we can have that goes with hope is actually, although the hope is vast, the levers are small.
1: Yeah, that's brilliant, Tony. Well done. Very good.
0: Any other couple of questions? Yep. Hi, I'm Sarah. Hi. Over the last uh, week, I've missed a couple of your talks. I've tried to catch up on podcasts, but I haven't heard much reference to the Spirit. Mm. We've heard of God, and you made reference to a Trinitarian God, Mm. and we've heard of Christ. And up until recently, you talked about nudging. I'm wondering whether the Spirit has some role in those not nudging anymore, if that makes sense.
1: Well, thank you. I am in my deepest being still a Presbyterian Calvinist <laughs> <laughs> and I haven't quite, you know, we're all in the endless process of conversion, are we not? So um, you're probably just putting your finger on, on, on something that is rather habitual in, in my case. Of course, my answer to you is, well, of course, the Spirit is everywhere in all that, everything I've been saying, I've been implying it, but you're quite right, of course. Uh, I, I haven't highlighted that, but my assumption is, my belief is that the Holy Spirit is in fact involved in all these things that we're talking about. And, and if, I, if I have a hesitancy about talking too much about the Spirit, which is not just inherited Presbyterian Calvinism, it is because of the tendency of Christian people to set the work of the Spirit over against ordinary human stuff which then just ends this kind of conversation, because you don't need to worry about levers and analysis and stuff like that. It's all just the Spirit will do it. So I suppose I've had too much of that dichotomized thinking put my way, and it's made me think that talking too soon explicitly about the Spirit kind of confounds the conversation. But of course, our living as image bearers in God's world is living in relationship with with the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And to the extent that we are able to nudge or even to achieve great things, that is all of course at the same time the work of the Holy Spirit. So I'm very happy to have the chance to say that out loud, but it is implicit actually in everything that I'm saying. I just think we have an awfully unfortunate tendency to play the spiritual and the physical, the material, off against each other, to put planning over against righteousness, and a whole bunch of really unfortunate lists of dichotomies which uh, plague our… In what way? Yes um, you see one of the one of the we talked a, I talked a bit about the evacuation of the gods from the cosmos and the way in which modern science was impossible in that animistic culture. So this problem that we're talking about is not just a Christian problem it's a human problem. How do we speak about things like agency in relation to themes like God's sovereignty how we handle that is utterly crucial so, to the kinds of ancient peoples, indigenous peoples, ancient peoples, to the kinds of people who think of everything as spirit-infused, as it were, where the boundaries between God and the world get blurred and so on. Many of the questions that we've been discussing would make no sense at all. They presuppose this idea of the transcendence of God vis-a-vis our genuine liberty, moral freedom, ingenuity, thoughtfulness, planning, design, and everything else. And um, I just find that the way in which the, the, the Holy Spirit is spoken about, and the theology that informs that, all too often just kind of obliterates the conversation. It, it's as if you can solve every problem in the world just by saying God a lot, as it were. Do you know what I mean? And it's not constant with reality or with Scripture. Um, so, yes, I, I'm happy to say I do believe in the Trinity. I am a Nicene Christian, don't worry. Um, but the, I suppose the nature of this discourse uh, leads me to emphasize certain things a lot more than other ones.
0: Could, could I uh, add to that? Um, uh, you remember I said I was heavily influenced by this Indian movement when mm. <laughs> we had that conversation, right. uh, uh, the boxing movement, which was like a yeah. corollary of uh, Watchmen. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, one of the wisest things I ever heard was by an Indian woman. She's a doctor, forget her name, but she was a member of that movement. She visited us in Australia just passing through. And this woman was extremely, uh, I think, influential in, in Christian circles and in India generally. And she said something to me I have never forgotten. Uh, I, But I think I've only begun to understand it recently she said everything i know of and experience of christ and the father is in fact the spirit Mm -hmm. if i have a vision of a sense of jesus presence if his name is sweet to me because he's actually she said he's in the heavens he's not here Mm. a father is you know but but all of my sensory experience which we all know fills us the actual deliverer of that into my mind and sense is actually the Holy Spirit. So the actual... uh, The Holy Spirit is delivering the tactile, the imagery, the sensations, the thoughts of Christ and the Father to us. That's what she said. It was just a gorgeous thought. And then, of course, I've just been reading lately John 16, where I think that's actually what Jesus incredibly intertwined i'm in you i'm in the father no. but but that breakthrough one that says you'll never know this if i don't go away because you won't get the mm-hmm. spirit and when you get the spirit you're now sucked into the godhead which mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. so i think we can actually almost i actually feel with a the theology of the spirit in my own life it, we haven't had the right name for almost everything about our christian experience which is mediated by the spirit
1: yeah i, I uh looking back It's not clear to me whether the God that we worshipped in Scotland back in those days really was triune, actually. I mean, it took me a long time to work out the importance of this Trinity idea, because honestly, in practice, it was a bit of a monadic, you know, unity of a God, and even the relationship of Jesus to, to, to the Father was a bit problematic, so we weren't even thinking about the Spirit very much. That was for... The other folks to do, whoever they were, um, we had a problem even with, <coughs> I mean, I don't know if you've ever heard people say, quite casually without really thinking about it, yeah, well, you know, there's God and there's Jesus. They, treating them as, in other words, it's fundamentally non-Trinitarian language. It's as if there's God and then there's the man Jesus, and that's the default way of thinking and speaking. So... <coughs> Um, we're also deeply influenced by the story that we are given, aren't we? And it takes—it takes a lifetime to, um, through reflection and conversation and, and trauma, sometimes it takes a lifetime to strip away some of the ideas that are not so helpful. And um, we're all—I mean, somebody once said this to me: we're all recovering heretics. And if you think about it as a lifelong. A life full of recovery that's probably a better way of putting it that we're all on the road hopefully towards a greater understanding of the truth of the thing and how we should live as a result and uh, the story's not over yet mercifully right so
0: okay that's a good time to stop i think ian it's been a uh, treasure um when i asked you out here the first time I don't know if you remember, but I I can remember saying, I wanted you to give us stuff we could think about for about 10 years. (laughs) Um, And I think you've delivered, so thank you, Ian.
2: (laughs) Thank you.